From Real FM, this is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode 32 for November 29th, 2022. I am your Master of Ceremonies, Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by our Director of Strategy and the Director of Strategy at Parrot Analytics, Julia Alexander. Julia, hey there, how you doing? Good. How are you doing, Jason? I'm doing great. Um, I'm sorry to report we've both been replaced by uh, Bob Iger. <laughs> it was only a matter of time before we were replaced by Bob Iger. This is how it goes. That's just how it is in this business. We all uh, get replaced by Bob Iger eventually. It's only fair. We we did replace him as the host of this podcast. So That's show business, baby. That's, that's what that's, they mean. Okay. We're going to talk a lot about Bob's. Uh, but before we do that, Disney Bob's. Um, I wanted to do a couple quick pieces of follow-up. Um, we talked about Netflix releasing Glass Onion, which is the Knives Out sequel, in theaters for one week. Um, and that is that is almost at its end now, today, as we record this. Uh, box office has been really good in limited release. It's doing really well. Uh, I think the sign is here that Netflix could probably have made a lot of money in theatrical if it extended or widened the release. But... Um, it does it care? I, I it doesn't seem like it really cares about making money in movie theaters. The other thing too about this is it's a very weird case. So okay, the, the baseline right is that this movie is in 650 theaters for one week. That's the baseline of this. Now there are things that happen with theatrical releases. Studios give a percentage of, of revenue to theaters. This is how exhibitors make money alongside the popcorn and all that fun stuff. Um, and they tend to spend a certain amount of money on marketing. In this situation, not only has Netflix given, according to a report from Deadline, given the exhibitors a stronger revenue percentage than others. So to give you an example, the average is about 70% of uh, revenue goes to studios, so 30% would go to exhibitors. Um, in this case, it seems almost closer to like 50-50, which is wild. Uh, on the other end of that spectrum, Disney, for certain movies like Rise of Skywalker, for the Avengers, for Avengers Endgame, can take in a higher percentage because exhibitors know that people will go watch the movie. So that's one. So it's like a really weird situation. So to, to Jason's very good question, like, would this movie have made money if it was in theaters for three weeks? Like, in normal circumstances, yes. But also with the certain breakdown of, of the revenue, like, maybe not, especially considering how much Netflix was spending on marketing, which is uh, it seems to be a lot of money for Netflix, especially, but even compared to what other studios would pay on a title like this. So it's a very weird situation. And here's my conspiracy theory. Mm. This movie was a huge internal debated movie according to the new york times um uh, uh scott uh whose last name i'm forgetting who oversees all of film scott stuber who oversees all of film for netflix he wanted it to have like a three to four week release right like do the 30 to 45 day release now let's be careful with timing this movie comes out the week just the week of thanksgiving if we give it three weeks it's kind of the perfect amount because then you hit avatar 2 that movie comes out nothing else matters in theaters like it's the only movie that matters so if you do three weeks, it kind of makes a ton of sense. That also gives the internal teams a better position to model out a film. If this was an actual idea of taking this experiment to use it as a way to pivot its streaming strategy to potentially include theatricality, you would want a longer release within a, 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 in, a, in a busy market to understand how a film might perform with competition during a busy period, which is typically Thanksgiving, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, right, that's kind of what you do if you're looking to pivot. You need all the data that you can get to make your point. 
We also know, so this is what Scott Stuber wants and many of his teammates. We also know, according to the New York Times, that Ted Sarandos does not want this. I mean, if you, and even if you didn't read the report, you could, you would know that from listening to any earnings call where Ted Sarandos specifically says over and over again, I don't want to put movies in theaters for the most part. Why would we take away from our core business, which is streaming, which is the platform? That is what we're bringing. You know, there's always the mentality of like certain people can't go see certain things in theaters. Hence, you know, Glass Onion, 650 theaters, it's still a limited release to, to an extent, not in a typical format, but to an extent. It can be a wide release. Remember, Netflix has reinvented the wide release via streaming. All of which is my conspiracy theory, which is, I think, Ted Sarando said, sure, we'll put it in theaters for a week. We'll build up hype. We know it's going to do really well. We'll ride the good press of like, look how well this movie would have done in theaters. Netflix has a huge hit on its hand, blah, 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 blah. Knowing full well that it's not necessarily going to change my mind on pivoting to theatricality, even as Amazon looks to invest, you know, a billion dollars into doing 12 to 15 theatrical movies a year. Ted Sarando gets to go, I did it. It did well, but hmm, is it enough? Because you know what the bigger issue is? This movie is going to be huge on Netflix. And Ted Sarandos gets to go, look how much bigger it is on Netflix. This is where audiences, look how many subscribers it brought in. Look how many high-risk churn subscribers it kept. This is the whole, our whole business. My conspiracy theory is he gave it the week release in part because Ryan Johnson wanted it, in part because Scott wanted it, in part because they knew they could bring it to theaters and generate some kind of strong positive buzz about it, in part because they knew people would go out and say, I'm going to watch this immediately again once it's on Netflix. And it still gets to have the success story of this being a huge hit on Netflix, which I almost have no doubt that it will be. And all of which parlays into Ted's strategy. So, So all of this is a long way of saying like, I think there is a very calculated number of steps that got us to this moment with Glass Onion in theaters. It feels a little bit to me, though, like this is also I wonder if this is Ted Sarandos digging in unnecessarily, like because I I get that the point is for Netflix to um, get people to subscribe and keep their subscriptions Mm -hmm. and have value on the service. But isn't ultimately the point of Netflix to make money? I mean, not to be mercenary here, but like. If you're leaving theatrical money on the table and replacing it, like the money is the money. That's number one. And then my other my other thought would be it's I don't know, having a good theatrical run and then kicking it to Netflix immediately. I feel like having a good theatrical run is is also marketing for the movie on Netflix and like having it be a hit that's immediately on Netflix. I'm not sure that makes it less desirable to view on Netflix. Cause even if it's a no. theatrical hit, how many people are going to be able to see it in theaters anyway, even if it's a three week release that's wider, most of your audience is still going to see it on Netflix and maybe they're going to be even more hyped about it because it was such a hit in theaters. So I, I like it. it I, I wonder if, Ted Sarandos is fo- so focused on his belief in his core strategy that he's turning away money that could otherwise be made, which if I were a Netflix investor, I'd be unhappy about. And it may be like discounting the value of having a, a hit in theaters. You're 100% correct. There's no reason this movie should not have been in theaters for at least two to three weeks. Like there's yes, there's the argument that I made earlier that many people would have made if they have not already made that like Avatar is going to eclipse everything. 
And so that's why studios counter-program, right? So they say we're not going to be where Avatar is because we don't want to go up against it. But you can give that three-week period and make a decent amount of revenue um, and, and prove that this is where films can premiere. And to your exact point, we actually don't see a strong correlation in the idea that if a movie goes to theaters first, then demand for it decreases on, on streaming. We see the opposite. If a movie is in theaters first and then moves to streaming services after 30 to 45 days, typically demand tends to increase for that film. So if you were going to have a movie like Knives Out 2, which is, or like Glass Onion, Knives Out 2, which is a hugely anticipated sequel to one of the biggest movies of 2019, right? Kind of one of the last pre-pandemic movies. Why would you hold on to that? And and, and here's the thing. Scott knows this. Other members of, of Netflix's team know this. And and look, Netflix is full of incredibly smart people, um, full of people who have worked in, in, in programming and content strategy and data and, and analytics and investment banking. Full, fully people. They've clearly modeled this out. But at the end of the day, the question comes down to how much money are you potentially leaving on the table? One. Two, how does this increase the brand viability and the brand visibility for audiences when you think about what Netflix is trying to figure out? Two. Uh, and then three, um, you know, kind of kind of specifically, how do you, how does this help to work with artists? How does this work with directors and actors who still want their movies in theaters? And look, I've said on this podcast before, certain movies don't need to go to theaters. You know, the Adam Sandler Netflix relationship is beautiful in many, many ways. Um, But this was like the type of movie that you're like, yeah, of course we're going to put this in theaters. We think there's something there. So I do think there's, you know, to your exact point, stubbornness is a great word for it. I think there is a inherent stubbornness to not bring things to theaters and to not be in that marketplace. But it just doesn't make sense, especially when the exhibitors are almost on the ropes, right? When you right. have them at a place where you can demand certain things and you can say, like, we want to work with you, but we want this and, and, and we're going to figure out a way. Like, it seems like the exhibitors got the better end of the deal this time around. And that seems like Netflix just wanted to be at AMC. So they were like, we'll, we'll just we'll, we'll make a deal that works. So we can only be in theaters for a week as opposed to 30 to 45 days. But going forward, if you can show that there's an audience who's willing to come out to you, the exhibitors will we'll work with you. I mean, look at the money they give to Disney whenever there's a new Star Wars or a Marvel movie. Like, it's it's a thing where they're like, we want people to come out. We want to work with you. We know that you have power over this. So let's figure out a way to do it. And it just is like an easy way to generate, if not incremental revenue, even taking out the revenue side of things, just to widen the brand awareness of Netflix internet, uh, domestically, globally, and still have things go to the streaming service and still have that audience there and still parlay to that audience without really ruining the idea that things have to premiere on Netflix first to be Netflix originals. Well, we'll see what happens uh, next time <laughs> something like this can't, comes up. But yeah, it, 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 I just think Ted Sarandos is, he's got his take and he is the boss. But uh, I would I would say that this was a success and it shows how much more of a success they could be if they just played it out a little bit. Um, one more piece of follow-up. Uh, really just sort of, there'll be a link in the show notes, really.fm slash downstream slash 32, um, or in your podcast player, to a big New York Times feature about um, AT&T buying, a, buying Time Warner and how a big a mess of it is. And there are lots of things to take away from that story, but I'll share you mine, which is, comes from basically the intro from the, the lead of the piece, which is uh, essentially... Uh, never ever work for a boss who makes you sit in front of them and read <laughs> a memo that they've just handed you silently 
in their presence because that person is a monster. And that's, of course, <laughs> what the head of AT&T made the Time Warner people do. Um, whoops. <laughs> like, right? Like, like, send them a memo and have them read it and then have them come to your meeting. But to be under the pressure sitting there silently, like... Like, how, do I read it fast? Can I even comprehend what's in it? And what was in the memo was stupid, by the way. Um, anyway, uh, it's a fun article. Fun in how many ways I think it was a bad idea. And also, I uh, there's a lot of interesting, I would say, delusion in there from some executives about how, oh, it was actually fine. It would have been fine if it weren't for some excuse. It's like it's not... It's not fine. Anyway, it's all over now, right? They've wrapped it all in debt and and sent it off to be with Discovery. But, um, yeah, yeah, not a great deal. <laughs> it's it's God. It's so good. It's such a good article, and it's just like there's so many. My favorite thing to keep in mind while you read this article is, um, I think I said this on the podcast before, so I apologize. But if you ever feel listeners like you're maybe not doing a great job or you're a little you're dealing with some with some imposter syndrome or you're dealing with things that we all go through i want you to read this article and i want you to keep in mind that in between the decision to buy direct tv a satellite business in 2016 at a time when streaming was at its height uh, uh so they bought a satellite business and then to buy uh time warner uh, and and get into a, a huge discrepancy with that and not understand the culture of, you know, entertainment and how that differs from being a telecom. I want you to remember that the company lost up to this point $150 billion and John Stanky got promoted twice. Yeah. So I just want you to keep that in mind when you're feeling bad. If you have not lost $150 billion, you're doing okay. Mm. Yeah, he was he that's how you fail upward at a meteoric rate is. It's lose beautiful. huge amounts of money and just keep yeah. failing upward. All right. Uh, time to talk about our big story. The big story. It's Bob's. Bob's coming. Bob's going. Look at so many Bob's. So many Disney Bob's. Uh, our last episode was titled Disney's uh, going to be OK or Disney's going to be all right or something like that, which I mean, <laughs> I stand by that. It, Disney's fine. That was it. Yeah. Disney's fine. Uh, I stand by that because our point was there's a lot of hemming and hawing here. But if you look at the fundamentals of Disney's business, there's a lot of strength here. They ha they are um, they are maybe overreacting. Well, <laughs> the overreacting maybe question mark of the board or at least the dramatic reacting of the board uh, at Disney continued in a. a I've heard it described as being a shock and yet also not surprising. And I feel like that's about right. Like, I I think we all knew something like this was possible. We've got a, a, a letter writer wrote in to point out that we talked about Bob Chapek getting an extension. We talked before he got the extension about whether he would get a contract extension, that his contract was coming up. And there was this real question of like, they left, they let it go so long. That was like, are they not really thrilled with him? And then they gave him this three year contract extension. That's actually, I guess some partially backdated and actually less than three years and more like two years. And it, it felt like kind of a vote of confidence, but not a strong one. And we actually said at the time that if they don't like him, they're not going to let the two years uh, go by, right? If they don't li like him at any point, they can just dump him and pay him off and, and bring in someone else. Well, that happened apparently very quickly. Although Bob, again, maybe, maybe you've got some perspective on this. There's been so many stories written about this already, but there are so many stories that are like, Oh, it happened. It came together very quickly. Um, like, and it sounds like people, some people on the board at Disney 
kind of finally decided to move and get rid of Bob Chapek fairly quickly. But like, was Bob Iger like just sitting around twiddling his thumbs and and uh, then he got tapped on the shoulder and he said, oh, I guess I could come back. Or it feels to me like Bob Iger was uh, kind of playing a long game, even if the board wasn't entirely playing it yet. But regardless of that, Bob Iger is back. Bob Chapek is out. And what happens now? <laughs> so I guess first I was wrong. Uh, and here's the thing. I was wrong. Clearly, I said it's <laughs> fine. He was not. Uh, no. But I don't think, here's the thing, I don't think Iger is going to be able to fix many things that Chapek couldn't fix. Here's where I think they make a big difference. Here's what I think happens. One, the board really, Disney stock is at a low. The board really needs someone that the street trusts, that investors trust, that shareholders trust. Chapek has not been that for a very long time. And so they start searching months and months and months ago for someone to replace Bob Chapek. Turns out they don't have anyone yeah. internally that's ready. They don't have anyone externally that wants to take over the role. So what do you do? You go back to the guy who has a huge chunk of his retirement tied up in Disney stock. You have a guy whose <laughs> legacy is tied up in the successor that he chose. And you have a, you go to the guy whose legacy is also tied up in the last thing he launched, which happened to be Disney Plus, happened to be streaming, happened to be, he called it, or he either he called it or someone called it, you know, the biggest um, launch of his tenure. No, uh, no, 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 no stress, right? Like, no, no, uh, whatever. So you have all these things happening. I think before they decide, hey, we can replace Bob Chapek with Bob Iger and we can go back to him. I think there's a little bit of a conversation happening between someone like a Christine McCarthy, who's the CFO, and a Bob Iger, uh, other people to, and a Bob Iger who plant, who not plant this idea, but who talk to him about it. Would you come back? Would you come back for a quick stint? Would you come back? I don't think it was just that he was sitting around, hadn't talked to Susan Arnold, who's the chairman, a chairperson of the board. Uh, and she just reached out and was like, Bob, you want to do it? And he was like, you know, I haven't been thinking about it, but sure. No, obviously there's some <laughs> thought going into this. Obviously there's some ideas of what he would do. So Iger's back. Chapek is out. It's something that they wanted to do for months. They found a reason to do it. I don't know why we ever thought anyone would be safe after what happened to Peter Rice and so many other executives in this industry. Um, that said, Bob Chapek will be fine. I think he's getting like $50 million or something. Like, he'll yeah. be fine. He's he's good. Um uh, he does not need anyone's tears. But what does Iger do that JPEG doesn't? So there's you have to go through different different verticals, right? You can look at parks. You can look at studios, which is film. You can look at um, uh, consumer products. You can look at gaming. And then, of course, the big one, you can look at streaming. And all of these are very important things. And I want to pass it over to Jason to get his thoughts. What I will say about streaming, the first thing that he has to fix, because this is a streaming podcast, the first thing that he needs to fix is the growth expectations that Bob Chapek at a period of heavy acceleration in the DTC space in 2020 revamped and tripled and quadrupled to the street. Bob Iger, before he left, and this is, you know, right before COVID says we want to hit 60 to 90 million subscribers by the end of 2024. He was lowballing. Everyone knew he was lowballing. Uh, this is what you do when you give projected numbers. Mm -hmm. You lowball so that way you can beat them. Because if you don't beat the expectations that you put out there, it does not look good for you. 2020, Chapek is becoming into the CEO role. He's trying to distance himself from Iger, who he famously, according to multiple reports, does not get along with. Looking at data from a heavy period of acceleration, as Disney Plus launches across many different countries, says we're going to up those that 60 to 90 million to 230 million by 260 million. At the current moment, at this current moment, Disney would need to add 
about 10 million subscribers, no, 8 to 10 million on average over the next uh, eight quarters in order for that number, the low end of that number to be hit. So what does Bob Chapek do? He adds, he introduces an advertising tier because that's one way to add subscribers. Um, but you have this concern where if you look at two quarters ago, Disney only adds 100,000 subscribers domestically. You have more of those quarters that happen because you're launching less territories, inflation is happening, and you're not necessarily producing content year round. There's a, a seasonality to Disney Plus that necessarily leads to 10 million plus subscribers every single quarter. You're going to miss your target. And that's a huge issue. That's why every single quarter, every single earnings call, you hear some analysts, typically Michael Nathanson, say, do you want to readjust guidance? And they go, no, no, we don't want to readjust guidance. So I think what (laughs) happens with Iger, he readjusts guidance. I think he goes in. I think, one, he can't do anything about the increased prices. I mean, unless he comes out tomorrow and it's like, we're not going to increase them. But he needs to do – he probably sticks by because it would have been slightly inevitable. He doesn't turn away on the ad-supported tier. That was inevitable. Disney has great relationships with advertisers. Um, when you look at all this, Iger's going to come in and try to fix his succession choice and what's happening with streaming. But there's not a huge lot that he can do that increases both the revenue and brand perception and stock at Disney. Like, it's 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 a difficult thing to balance right now. But, Jason, I'm interested in, in your thoughts on it. I, I, there's so much, there's so much here. Um, it definitely seems to me that part of what they decided is that even though Chapek was executing in some ways Iger's strategy, I think he proved that he was bad at, at parts of the job that you need to be good at to be Disney CEO, right? And it's, so it's, so you, we can talk about the strategy, but part of it is Chapek was, he sabotaged his relationship with creative community. And I know I keep saying this on this podcast, but it, when, when we say it's a creative business, we mean both those words. And I get tired of people who act like Disney is just about creativity. I also very much get tired of people who say Disney is just about business. You have to be able to make it work with both of those words. And Iger is good at that. And Chapek proved to be bad at that. He also proved to be bad at politics. He proved to be bad at communicating with the board and with Wall Street about the position of the company, as you pointed out. So like, even if we we set aside like what's Bob Iger's big strategy change going to be? What if there's very little strategy change in the end? And it's all about better communication with the creative community, better political handling of situations, better communicating with Wall Street and better communicating mm-hmm. with the board. It's a win <laughs> just and finding a new successor at some point. Right. I think it's a win just on that. I think I think that we can sometimes make this harder than it needs to be to say, turns out Chapek did not have the skills required to be Disney CEO. And in one of the podcasts I listened to about this, I can't even remember who it was. I think it was Lucas Schott Bloomberg talking to Matt Bellany. Um, they, they pointed out like, okay. Chapek was picked by Bob Iger, right? Like it's Bob Iger's fault that Bob Chapek failed. Um, and Bob Iger's, uh, I guess, well, w- reward is to have to come back and get his old job back, um, which he probably loves, and um, and find another successor, maybe possibly because they really do need somebody to step up. And there's a lot of obviously uh, machinations going on there and analysis about who might have that job. On the um, on the strategy front, like I think one of the challenges that looks like for for Chapek was as the world changed, he didn't change the strategy. And so while we can say, well, he was just executing Iger's strategy, so isn't that on Iger too? I would say that maybe if Iger was there, he would have changed the strategy 
more thoughtfully uh, as reading the room, getting back to politics and the board and Wall Street about that Netflix correction and how it totally changed the game in terms of 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 uh, how Wall Street views streaming. Um, you know, so like I'm sure he will make adjustments there, but I, I I've told people who have asked me about this, I don't think you can you you should expect wholesale like uh, changes like reversions of part of the, all of the Disney strategy. There will be places where Iger will immediately, as he's already done, change the structure and fire some of Chapek's people and, and and do all of that. But the the financial issues remain and he is going to have to make some hard decisions i would imagine he's got some big moves planned too i don't know what they are there's lots of speculation is it about selling espn or or buying hulu or selling hulu or uh or buying some other company buying a video game company buying ea or uh finding a partner with deep pockets and doing something interesting with them all of those things i think are probably on the table and they might be moves that he he needs to make but uh, I'm going to go back to Disney's fine. Like, I think you can get through this with adult supervision, uh, which Bob Iger can provide. And I think you can get through this as long as you've got somebody who everybody's actually confident in to be his successor in two or three or four years. They say two, but come on, who are we kidding? Right. I, I think you brought up something that I want to touch upon because it's extremely important. One, everything you said, like, ding, ding, ding. Like, like the this is a... Not, I mean, this is very much a leadership change, but it's also a figurehead change, right? It's also very much this, like, we are going through a rough period. We're going to go through it with a guy who we know can lead a company. We know we believe in his skills, but two, also people like, like people just naturally are like, I trust him, which is a weird thing to say about any CEO. You know, it's like, it's, they look at him, they're like, I like him again, weird to say about any CEO, but he has this quality about him that is inherently charming and charismatic and believable and trustworthiness. And 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 there's that that's something that Chapek never had. Chapek always felt like an outsider and Disney was very much home of the insiders. You know, Disney created, especially under Iger, a lot of the culture that has become the predominant culture today. So you have to kind of be able to get along with everyone or at least seem like you do. And I think what you're speaking of there from the political side of things speaks to um, Bob Iger always, because he had a much stronger EQ than uh bob chapek did he always felt like someone who believed in art first and the company was supplementary versus chapek always felt like someone who put the company first and the art was supplementary and this is not to say that chapek did not believe in the art nor that uh, bob Iger is not aware of how to run a business right but if you are in their shoes it is the difference between going out with a brian lord or a scarlett johansson or whoever and understanding how to talk about the about art and and film and television and how to be a true fan of something, putting the data secondary to it, even if you are relying on it increasingly every single year, versus coming, you know, this is the irony with Bob Chapek failing because of the street's reaction to him is that he's the go-to street guy, right? He's the guy who's like, we're going to put company profits first, like, everything else is going to come afterwards. We're not going to get political because we're, you know, we're a company, we're not going to give into talent demand because we're a company first and all these things were the very anti-disney way disney's whole thing was standing up for what they believe was right while still negotiating deals with florida don't get me wrong like again there's that business side of Iger, but he always came out as artist friendly first and that's kind of what disney needs right now the, the thing hanging over hollywood this this very tight 
inability to breathe anxiety that is hanging over the industry is because people are terrified of the changing economic structure. One of the biggest changing economic structures in years, even DVDs and VHS, right? That was kind of supplementary to theatrical and linear. This is like a true disruption in this space that is equivalent to film and television coming out and kind of being in, being in the theater and being like, what does this mean for us? Streaming from an economic perspective and from a payout perspective is in similar positions. And so when we look at who you want to lead, one of the leading companies in this, working with talent, working to make people feel like that anxiety is 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 going to be, it's everything's going to be okay. You don't want a Bob Chapek, you want a Bob Iger, and no one is more anxious or there are few people as anxious as the executives at Disney and the board at Disney and Disney shareholders and this idea of like, okay, if China can't reopen and, and that ha- and that affects consumer goods and that affects parks and that affects us, you know, how does the content side fare? How does this look? If we can't get movies into China, how does that deal? Like, how do we look at box office revenue? All of these questions come into play. And to Jason's excellent point, if you don't have a guy who can communicate with both the board and talent and staff, right, yeah. across these different things and ease that anxiety, what you get is a stock squeeze and you get a very, very concerned body across the board. And that's just creates bad vibes and bad vibes creates bad art. Um, that is something that any artist will tell you. Uh, and, and so we, we get into this position. I think that's where Iger, that's what he can fix. He can fix the face of Disney again. He can kind of go in and be the guy that everyone's like, okay, I feel better. Even if realistically everyone involved in the situation understands there's not a lot more he can do that Chapek wasn't necessarily doing. Like, like, like there's not, it wasn't that Chapek was a bad operator from a financial standpoint. He was a bad operator from a, a, an operation standpoint, like from a guy who was literally had to be a manager, had to understand why, you know, certain leads would want to own their PL, right, on their balance sheet. Like, like all of these different things he didn't really get and Chapek does. And so I think that's where he comes in and for the next two years as he builds out who he wants to take over as CEO, as he kind of figures out what does, streaming look like to Jason's point now that there's been this Netflix inflection point what does all of this stuff tell him about changing some of the course of course correcting some of the stuff that he did before he left so i think there's not going to be necessarily huge change in the next 2 years there'll be some changes i think there will be a huge change as he guides the next ceo um which is either, you know, there, there's a lot of names being thrown out. I, the one I hear all the time is Josh Tomorrow. And I like Josh Tomorrow. He's the head of parks. But you run into the situation where the yeah. Bob Chapek was the head of it's parks. Not, not gonna, and it's not going to happen, right? It's just it, unless unless he moves. I, the thing to look at is if if uh, if Bob Iger moves people around inside Disney, because that would be a signal, right? If he takes the parks guy and moves him to some other position, it's very much a you need to right. learn this other part of the business kind of thing. But yeah, it's going to be a going to be a hard sell. Um, I wanted to I mention a couple of things. One is, um, I think that Iger, look, Iger had the vision, and I think it was a great one to say Disney needs to be a direct-to-consumer business. Yeah. If ever we, if ever there was a company to do it, it's Disney. We're going to go into streaming. We're going to commit to this. He also made the previous canny moves of things like buying Pixar, buying Marvel, buying Lucasfilm. Like, there are lots of smart moves that he's done and the Disney plus strategy, I think was the capper. I think it was brilliant. Obviously the world has changed. 
I, I have some confidence in Bob Iger as the guy who can figure out now that that thing that we've been talking about since the beginning of this podcast and before that that huge investment in streaming where money is no object, essentially, because it's a land rush. Now that that's officially over, right, as of three, four months ago, it, I have confidence in Bob Iger to be the guy who looks at, you know, what is the end state of the Disney Plus streaming business. Where do we want to get to that is something that makes money and makes our investors happy, you know, makes the street happy and also is a good place for us in terms of our our relationship with our customers. I feel like he I have much more confidence that he's going to be able to find that spot and start down the path there than I did for Bob Chapek. And I don't want to demonize Bob Chapek, but I want to give an example of why I think it was clear that he was the wrong guy and he didn't understand the business and he brought a very very business school-ish kind of attitude of like, this is another company. And I think that was his downfall. And my example would be the moving, the Imagineers, the people who work in parks, who come up with this amazing stuff from Southern California, where they've been since Disneyland was started and, and saying, you all have to move to Orlando because we made a deal with the state of Florida and we've got some cheap real estate and tax breaks and we're going to yeah. move you all to Florida. And that was a money move that didn't consider the people at all. And you're thinking, well, yeah, but that's business, right? Here's the problem. Imagineers are one of the things that makes the park business and makes Disney what it is. They're not a fungible resource. He approached the whole situation as basically being like, first off, if we tell them to move from Southern California to Orlando, they're going to be happy about that. Friends, they were not happy about it. And second, if they don't like it, who cares? We'll just hire some other people in Florida who can do that job because the Imagineers are a fungible resource, right? And they're not. They are not. And, and that, that to me, was like the ultimate Bob Chapek move in terms of, again, smart business decision, completely showing a lack of understanding about what a rare talent group Right. They had assembled that was feeding the creativity in their parks. And I get that it costs more money and I get that you got a tax break. And, and by the way, they aren't the only ones, a whole bunch of other groups. And I know people who are um, sort of low level executives inside Disney in other branches like like uh, like marketing and uh, uh, merchandising. And you know those groups also were told basically like you all have to move from California to Florida. And again, those groups are basically decimated and will they be able to find and hire good people and either get them to move to Florida or maybe they're already in Florida, maybe somewhat, but you're talking about a wholesale destruction of institutional knowledge of incredibly talented, rare talent of people and saying, yeah, but tax breaks and the land is cheap. So we're just going to make everybody move. And and I think that is when we say Bob Chapek has a lower emotional intelligence and maybe is too much of a money guy and not enough of understanding the creative part of the business. That's the one that keeps coming back to me, because who in their right mind could ever look at that situation and think the right thing to do was just force all the Imagineers to move to Orlando. And yet that's what he did, because in the end, he thought that the people didn't matter. They could always hire more creative people somewhere else and save money in the bargain. And he was completely wrong. It remains to be seen if that's a thing that Bob Iger reverses. They've already delayed this move. Um, but the damage is done in many ways. A lot of those people are basically on their way out because they weren't going to move to Florida. So it's like, I don't know, like Chapek. 
I, 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 you know, we gave him the benefit of the doubt, but it was always hanging there that he didn't understand the creative part of the business. And um, Iger is definitely not a touchy feely, uh, lovey dovey Hollywood hippie type person. He's a he's a guy in a suit, but he gets he gets it. He can speak their language and he understands their value and how to make it work for the corporation, right? And that's what you need in a Disney executive. You know what he is? I was having a conversation with a very senior person at. Um a company who's uh, I won't say <laughs> I won't say they're the yeah well well disguised there at a at a the, company okay potential potential client stuff so uh, we're having a conversation and I said what do you guys need to do to fix some of the issues that you have going on and this person turned to me and said uh, we got to hire less MBAs and I thought it was an interesting <laughs> response I said why and they're like we have too many MBAs like we have too many people who have done like an MBA at Harvard then did a year at BCG or a year at Goldman a year and they're great at like certain things they are the best in their fields of certain things but they don't watch tv or movies they don't know why we would fight to keep this thing or why we wouldn't or whatever it might be they look at the cost efficiency and i keep replaying that conversation to my over and over again in my head when i think about chapek because like ironically he would be like the great like <laughs> owner of a consultancy firm who's like here's how i would cut costs like here's how i would you know if you read this really great book about the history of mckinsey um, McKinsey just basically tells people to lay, like, tells companies to lay people off all the time. There's like, you could just lay people off and save money. And, and this idea of like, you could just cut this and it's the heart of your business, but also it'll save you money. You can just do this thing. You know, Apple fans will know the infamous McKinsey story of some of the McKinsey guy going into the room where all the executives were and saying hardware down, software up. And Johnny Ive, like that day was like, ah, I don't know if this is the Apple I want to be a part of, right? Which better for worse kind of changed the trajectory of Apple in a lot of ways. Um, that's where Chapek thrives. That's why I said it's like it's ironic the street didn't like him because like he's very much a guy on the street. But what Iger doesn't have is an MBA, right? Like what Iger didn't yeah. come up in that world. Iger was a weather forecaster <laughs> who like managed to then work at ABC and like worked his literally worked, worked his, his way, way up through getting promoted yeah. to being the CEO of a company. And he's the guy who he he the stories that he tells are the stories about when frank when he was running as a producer i think it was a producer he was running back and forth and franks he needed to go get frank sinatra coffee and he was like so excited like he's the guy who grew up loving hollywood who happened to get a job and be very 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 good at business i feel like we keep talking about Iger's and uh, emotional intelligence he's also very businessly uh, businessly intelligently from a business perspective and hires the right people best duo in a very long time right was bob Iger and kevin mayer who kind of kevin mayer doesn't have the operational skills to be a ceo at least not yet but was a brilliant brilliant strategic mind and, and helped Iger out in many ways and led a lot of stuff alongside Iger, um all the big acquisitions and so when we look at Iger, he knows how to talk about the thing that he loves because he gets it. He's like, I, this is my world. Like, I grew up, I grew up loving this and I learned the business side of things. And when I talk to this person at this company, whose name and company will remain right. nameless, Senior. when I, I talk to the person at the company, uh, they said, it's not that we don't want to hire MBAs. It's not like we're saying like, biz, no longer need business school. Like they do things that like, if you haven't got an MBA, you don't ha have skills in, or you haven't done the year at JP Morgan, you don't have the modeling skills that someone might at JP Morgan, whatever it might be. But they were saying, we also need people who don't come from those backgrounds and are like, hey, this is a great show. Like I, it doesn't hit maybe the threshold that you're looking at, but I think it's great. Or, or hey, I know that A24 is a company actually doesn't make a, an insane amount of profit that some people might think about, but look at the brand that they've managed to create for themselves as a distributor, right? Like all these 
different things. It's 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 Casey Bloys taking a bet on Euphoria. Like it's it's yeah. him saying we need a teen show and we're going to do this. And so I think that's where Iger has Iger has that, and and he and he also has the business chops of Chapek. Chapek has the business chops. Chapek uh, does not have. I think he's to Jason's earlier point. I think he's stubborn and didn't want to change course when he should have. And yeah. so the stubbornness is not going to get you in there. You have to listen to people around you. The reason Bob Iger stepped down was because he realized he stopped listening to people, and he was like, "I can't. I I need to listen to people around me." And two, he didn't have the emotional intelligence to work in an industry like Hollywood, where all you're dealing with all day is, and I mean this lovingly because Jason, I know a lot of creative people, neurotic creatives. That's all you're dealing with all day. You can't just be like, I mean, this conversation about Zaslav, right? You can't just be like, well, for accounting purposes, you can't tell someone their show's not happening anymore because of accounting. Look, some, some creative people get the business. And yes. often they end up rising up and doing working in a studio or or they they create a a, a, stu- a production company of their own that has their stuff in it and they build an empire. Those things happen. But I'll, I will tell you, just like uh, you said, Julia, um, a lot of creative people like they don't do that. They're not multitaskers like that. They never got the business part of it. They just want to write or act or direct or whatever. They don't get that part. And if you don't speak their language, they just don't, they just don't understand, right? Like they don't get it and they have value, right? And you can't just say, uh, and my wife has an MBA. So like, we're not trying to slag off on business no, school here, no, but, but it's that point of like, this is a, this is why I keep bringing up the dichotomy between creative and business is you need both. You need to understand both. Yes. If all you understand is one, either one, it's not going to go well. You need people, yes. you need executives who can bridge the gap, who understand both sides. And that is Iger, right? And, and the, I think maybe part of and his challenge, rare. part of his challenge, everybody dings Iger for going through all of these um, heirs to the throne and kicking them out and saying they're not going to be any good and and saying that that's because Iger never wants to leave the throne. And I'm sure there's some truth in that. But I'm just going to say I'm going to give him a little bit of a benefit of the doubt because you are kind of looking for maybe not a unicorn, but like a rare person who can synthesize both Agreed. sides of the business. That's who you need to be the Disney CEO. That's a tough person to find who's got all of those characteristics. But yeah, the people on the creative side, like so many of them just don't. Yeah, you say we're just pulling we're, we're pulling your movie out and it's never going to get made because money, reasons, taxes, things. And the creative people are like, what? They, they don't get it. <laughs> And I'll tell you, I work with a ton of creative, work with a ton of creatives because we have our content valuation product and they want to know what their, their show or film is valued at for obvious reasons. Uh, and so we work with a lot of them and they are inherently interested in business. They're inherently interested in, in understanding how their product, they, their show or movie, I call product, their product helps a platform or helps a company, right? And, and parks, they want to know what they're going to pay. They're inherently interested in how many people are watching their thing. They're inherently interested in the financial side of things. They're not obsessed with that. And so you kind of talk, and but but you, you can't like talk down to creatives in the way that you can't, like in the way that you wouldn't want to have a business person be really smug with you. Like in the way that you wouldn't want to talk down to a business person who didn't go to film school, right? Like, like you want to have a, a, a conversation of mutual respect, which is what Iger can do really well. And the thing that I will say to Jason's excellent point, and I will actually, Jason, I will say that you are looking for a unicorn. And you know how I know that? Because Netflix has two CEOs to accomplish this. <laughs> yeah, Netflix true. has a left brain CEO and a right brain CEO. It doesn't mean that one does not care about art and one does not care about business, but one is inherently better 
at the art side of things, that's Ted Sarandos. And one is inherently better at the operational logistics side of things, and that's Reed Hastings. Yeah. They got two CEOs to do what Disney wants Bob Iger to do, and he's a rare unicorn who can do it. That's why that's why great CEOs, we admire them so much, because they are inherently fascinating, intelligent, uh, uh, aspiring people to kind of look up to in many ways, or, or to, to talk about, um, you know, whatever it might be. And it's here that Iger is that rare unicorn. Now, again, Iger's biggest strength is that Iger supported himself with people who were smarter than him. And he would be the first to say that with people who he could look at and be like, you know, he was smart. He's an intelligent guy. He had he had his gut. He knew what the right thing to do was. But he surrounded himself with people who could do things that he couldn't. He surrounded himself with people like Tom Staggs and Kevin Mayer and, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, Alan um, um, Horn, right? All these different people who are like, yes, like this is going to make Bob look better. And Bob, and at the end of the day, CEO takes credit when things are going well. And if he's good get, or she's good, gives credit back to the team um, and also takes responsibility when things are not going well. It's all on their head. And if you look at kind of what, he had in a Kevin Mayer who led the acquisitions of three of the biggest acquisitions at Disney. When you look at an Alan Horn who helped develop some of the biggest franchises, when you have a Kevin Feige, uh, right? Like, like you kind of support them. You support them in any way that they need to be supported and you rely on them. And the question I have for Iger now is many of those people have left Disney in part because he left or in part because they did not become CEO yeah. or for whatever other medley of reasons. You find a new pe- a group of people to to rely on i think he knows everyone there still for the most part but he's gonna have to relearn some of those things he's gonna have to move some things back he's got christine mccarthy who's his right right hand uh man for like you know right hand woman right hand person um and so that's good and he, and he has the board's trust and he has the public's trust but he's still got to find that internal team to really help support him and i think that's going to be part of what he spends his time doing is finding out who his new team is who his new inner circle is again vast majority of that will still be people there but Alan's gone, Kevin's gone, right? Like, like these these people are gone, and so you're figuring out, okay, well, who's who's my who are my next people? Yeah, well, that's one of his challenges. In addition to figuring out the entire screen, streaming landscape, is can you find a unicorn? Uh, we'll I see. just want to say before we move on, yeah. um, for people listening, that, that so Jason usually Jason does our show notes, and they're always very very detailed, and they're very good, and they're like, here's what I think, <laughs> and I just need you to read this out. It just this section just says. Bob's and Bob's. then it says Chapek out, Iger back in. What? How? <laughs> yeah. And it's the greatest summary yeah. in our show notes. I went I went with a different way with the show notes this week because it's like <laughs> I mean I could have just done a bunch of question marks. Um yeah, and and look, here we are 46 minutes in, so I think, you know, we managed to talk about it a little bit. I this is an all Disney episode, so I want to actually shift gears and talk about another thing that's on Bob Iger's plate and just what you think about this thing that happened, which is Disney uh, Animation Studios released a movie in theaters called Strange World and it basically flopped. I had never even heard of it and I looked to see like I looked it up to be like, do I remember seeing it? And not just remembering the name. And I looked and I'm like, nope, no memory of this movie existing at all. Uh, and I look, I'm not the be all end all of box office, but I, maybe I'm representative that I didn't even know that this movie existed. Um, I, I'm just you, you tweeted about it a little bit, but I, I, I'm curious, what does this event, which is Strange Worlds coming out and not doing well, tell us about whether it's about Disney or about theatrical in general or about 
animation in theatrical right now. What what is your interpretation looking at the fact that Strange World came out and basically stiffed? Yeah, and uh, the notes here are much more detailed than our yeah. <laughs> It doesn't just say Bob's. Um, <laughs> I mean, Strange World, what? How? <laughs> Where? Um, so I think, I mean, seriously, remember what I said earlier in the show that there's a lot of things that Bob Iger's kind of got to look over? Studios is a big part of that, the theatrical slate. Animation is the crucial part of that uh, with within that that content slate. If we look at kind of the last few years, right? And to put this in perspective, sorry, I should I should break it down a little bit more. Strange World is a movie that cost between according to reports between 130 million and 180 million depending on reports. Animated features at uh, Disney tend to go for about 150 million. So it's within that ballpark. Then they typically add, you know, 20 to 30 million dollars in marketing and these movies tend to generate, you know, about 300 million plus. So so it, they kind of break even or or whatever it might be. Ideally they build profit look at Frozen, right? The Moana, these types of things. So Strange World is this movie uh, that it's, it's a new IP. It's from Disney Animation. It's not from Pixar. It's coming out. It's coming over Thanksgiving weekend, typically a very fruitful weekend for Disney. Uh, Frozen 2 saw huge numbers in, by releasing the week before Thanksgiving and into Thanksgiving. Massive, massive wins for that company over that period. Um, Strange World generated, it was, it, was, it was targeted to maybe hit 20, uh, 30 to 40 million, and it came in at 18 million which is over the five-day period. Uh, rough. It's a huge loss for Disney. It's one of the worst performances for an animated film kind of over the Thanksgiving weekend since uh, Treasure Planet in, in 2002. Um, there was another movie in 2000. I can't remember which one it was, but that had similar results. So we're talking about pre-Iger yeah. buying Pixar. We're talking about Michael Eisner, quote, there's a huge issue with Disney animation, end quote, era of Disney that any Disney academic will tell you it was like kind of a cornerstone for what Di- Bob Iger realized they had to fix. That's why he bought Pixar. Fast forward 20 years, exactly. Uh, and we're in the same predicament where Disney animation is having a moment where demand for it hasn't particularly decreased, but there's issues at the box office. So then there's these questions, right? There's the macro question of, okay, well, is this an issue with... um uh, the theatrical experience in general. People are just not going to theaters as much. And globally, you're seeing about a 30% decrease still compared to 2019, 30 to 35% decrease. Uh, I think it actually might be domestic box office when you look at the ticket sales. But, you know, year to date compared to 2021, the domestic box uh, office is up 89%. So people are going back to theaters. But you also have, so that's one. So the issue is like theatrical, things are not necessarily back to where they would be. Two, the value of a theatrical experience has changed. So if we think about what does really well in theaters, as we talked about in this podcast many times, you know, it's like, do I have to go see this in theaters now? Do I have to see it on a big screen? And do I have to see it with people around me? Uh, so that's kind of three. This is usually pretty good for kids' movies. Something like Minions, something like Sonic, these these movies do really well in theaters. So Strange World, you know, should kind of be in that in that position. And three, three in my opinion, uh, before I get to that, but three, marketing. There was very little, to Jason's point, marketing for this movie. Now, it's always really hard to say how little marketing was because marketing has gotten so much more targeted. But both Jason and I watch uh, Disney films. Jason and I have a podcast talking about streaming. Jason and I read about (laughs) Disney a lot. Neither of us got ads for this movie. So I think, you know, that goes to show you a little bit. I had one um, Twitter follower say the only ad they saw for it was on Disney+. Plus, So they assumed it was a Disney Plus movie. And that leads us into four. The biggest issue is that we have 
Disney has trained audiences to expect either A, an animated film is on Disney Plus day of release, or two, a Disney animated film will be on Disney Plus within 30 to 40 days or 45 days of that uh, of it hitting theaters. So why would they go? If, especially if reviews are lower, which they are. This had a cinema score of B, which is the lowest for Disney in about two decades uh, for an animated film. Um, uh, Non-Pixar for Disney Disney animation. Uh, it's rough. Like it, it, the whole, the whole, you put everything together and what you have is an inevitable melting pot of disappointment because you have, you, you've told viewers and families that actually you don't need to go see this movie in theaters. You can watch it at home on Disney Plus. It's going to be there in 45 days. It's not getting great reviews or, you know, you don't have to go watch it because there's, look what, how much fun you had watching this at home. Um, the other element that goes into this before I pass it back to Jason uh, a, a, an independent film exhibitor tweeted me about this. And it was a good point. I hadn't considered it. Um, World Cup's on, right? Like yep. it's it's people are watching games at home. Uh, by the time the 2 p.m. game is over on the East Coast, 11 a.m. game on the Pacific, you might be getting a little late on the East Coast to bring young kids out to theaters. There's a whole thing that's happening that may have impacted. But for the most part, what we're seeing is a huge course correction that Iger has to take into consideration, which is like, how do we get the value of Disney animation and Pixar back up to where it was in 2019, 2018, 2017, when Moana and Frozen 2 and all these movies were generating huge box office results? You know, they could have a whole conversation about the Thanksgiving weekend, which is its own thing. But Disney really suffering with this and i think strange world a movie that neither of your podcast hosts who watch disney movies who have a a podcast about streaming have gotten an ad for um is a big part of the issue that Iger really needs to make a top priority you mentioned on twitter this thread by the excellent uh mark harris about that and i just it was a a point that i thought was really good and worth making which is expectations are part of this the the Movie business was already heading in a like, will it survive direction before COVID? So if you're judging anything based on how you thought it would be in 2019, when it was already going down and then there was a huge bump, you're making a mistake. And we really need, and this is what Bob Iger and his smart people, right? Those surrounding himself with smarter people need to figure out is what does theatrical look like in five years and what plays there and what doesn't? And what was it about Strange World that made it do this right and like if the answer is systematically given strange worlds given um lightyear or was lightyear an original or the lightner lightyear did theatrical and then went i don't know um i because so many of those pixar movies didn't i, know, I can't go remember theatrical, now but i, I think, think lightyear did it did yeah, it didn't it do did. that well so like maybe the answer oh, yeah, is yeah maybe the answer is oh you know animation is a harder sell now and that can't be a cornerstone or of our or if it is we need to make very different decisions about what ends up going to theaters and like you're we're, everybody's gonna have to relearn this but i would hope that uh you know inside disney that one of the smart people is talking to bob Iger about not only do they want to know obviously like what what does a marvel movie look like what does a star wars movie look like they haven't made a star wars movie in a while how, what when it comes back what is that movie and how does it you know how does it get marketed and how do people respond to it but obviously animation is at the core of what disney does and that's not going to change but I do wonder sometimes if the answer is going to be um, what we design for theaters versus Disney Plus is 
you know, what are those rules? What what are those rules and how do we do it? Because you don't want to go with a movie like this uh, out into theaters. Also, I mean, there's a creative issue too, right? They, it didn't get very good reviews. And, uh, and that maybe it doesn't tell us a lot as much about theaters right now as it does about the fact that nobody was really buzzing about this movie. Um, and that's right. a creative issue, which is why did this, why was this movie not very good? Um, and, and, and the yeah. thing about this movie, you know, when we look at the life cycles of animated films, there's a very good chance that this movie was caught in the crossover between Iger and, uh, sorry, crossover between Iger and Chapek, right? Yeah. Like it, it seems that it, just cause they take so long to, to create. Um, what I will say is to Jason's point, as they had that conversation, it's, you know, it'd be one thing if kids movies and animated movies weren't performing well in theaters, but they are like, like they are, people are going out to see them again. Families are, especially now as kids are getting vaccinated. I know that RSV is a thing, but they're, they're bringing their kids back out. They're spending time in theaters. We see it with, again, Minions saw huge numbers. We saw it with Sonic that huge numbers. So it's happening. I think there was a, an interesting tweet from uh, Rich Greenfield um, of, of Light Chill Partners, and he said this feels like the type of movie that maybe should have gotten to streaming this feels like a disney plus movie that ended up going to theaters and maybe that was a misdirect and the thing is i don't necessarily disagree with him but that movie if it did cost 150 million dollars that movie can't just go to disney plus like that's it's too expensive of a movie also if if it was not designed for disney plus you get into a whole situation again with creatives that you get into kind of a scar joe where it's like you're working at the back end deals again you're figuring out how to break that down it's a whole legal mess so you bring it to theaters and parks you think it, you've got a hit on your hands and parks it's a 150 million dollar movie and so you're going to bring it out to theaters um what Disney needs to be better at from the get-go is determining beforehand, is this a type of movie based on the investment, based on the audience, based on its ability to bring in new subscribers, retain high-risk churn subscribers, based on what we need it to do accomplish, that we want to bring to theaters, or that we want to bring to Disney+. Plus. If it's on Disney+, Plus, there are marketing ways that you can do internally on that platform that brings down your marketing costs a little bit. You can hyper-target online. There's a very specific way, as well as traditional marketing, to kind of lessen the cost of that film while help, while getting it to accomplish what it needs to. If it's decided upon that this is going to be a theatrical release, right? So, you know, this is not something that Marvel or Star Wars, uh, Marvel or Lucasfilm necessarily have to worry about. But Disney Animation and Pixar, if this is the type of film we're going to bring to theaters, you know, here's the the marketing that we're going to support it. Here's what we're going to do to ensure that this is going to have as strong of a release as it possibly can. And you can't control it. Can't control people like it. Can't control people uh, choose to see something else that weekend. But there felt like there was no support and miscommunication about what this movie was and who this movie was for. Um, and I think the other thing, too, is it's really difficult, I think, for Bob Iger, whose first major acquisition was Pixar after a close friendship with Steve Jobs, for him to look at Pixar being called the straight to DVD bin of branding at Disney. I think that's yeah. a really hard thing for him to reconcile with. So I think you'll see a huge push to get Pixar back in theaters to support Pixar in theaters from a, a big marketing perspective from takeovers on, on uh, ESPN, on ABC, on Disney channel, of course, um, because that was his first thing. And, and he bought it, I think like months before Iger, uh, Iger, uh, Steve Jobs passed away. Like it was, it was a very important piece of thing for him. And it was the, he saw it as the future of animation. He saw it as the key to being a core part of Disney's heart. And when your competition is not just, again, the traditional systems, but it's Coco Melon, right? It's it's all these other online things that are getting into the, the, the streaming space, into the linear space, and potentially into the theatrical space. You really have to figure out how to find 
the new core Disney fans who come into Pixar and have that same love affinity with Pixar and Disney as you do the older fans. And I think that's a huge hurdle that Bob Iger really needs to to determine. And Strange World is kind of an example of like how poorly things can go wrong if that support isn't there. Yeah, I wonder, you talk about the Apple relationship. Um and and yes, yeah, Steve Jobs ended up what uh, was the largest individual shareholder of Disney after that, and um, and was Wait, on so maybe the board. it wasn't just before he died. No, it I was guess a couple it was years it, before. It was a few years. Yeah. Okay. Um. But like, I do wonder about that influence. There are lots of people out there who are probably yo-yos who are saying like, oh, maybe Apple will buy Disney or all that. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know how that makes sense, but. Um, parts of their business make sense. Many parts of their business, I think, don't make sense for Apple. But I, I am struck by the fact that Iger knows enough about Apple and watched the transition from Steve Jobs to Tim Cook, and it it, it reminded me of the transition from uh from Bob Iger to Bob Chapek in a way. And I'm not saying Tim Cook is Bob Chapek because I think what what, but it's a similar situation. And I think the challenge is Tim Cook needed to structure Apple because he wasn't going to be Steve Jobs. He didn't have that level of, uh, for lack of a better uh, term, creative connection to the creative part of that business. And so he had to build a structure where the people who were involved in the design and engineering had strong voices um, so that they made decisions. And, and the people who would criticize Tim Cook's Apple will say he's too too focused on the numbers and on production and it and is you know there's a whole book about like losing their soul it's a similar argument i think apple the difference has been that apple is much more successful under tim cook and that didn't happen with bob chapek but i think i wonder sometimes if if that is something that that bob Iger thinks about is in, in his thoughts about how to do a transition is if he's the steve jobs sort of bad bad analogy but if we say at least somebody who can kind of bridge the gap there uh, and i'm not sure i i actually think that Iger is <laughs> better at that than steve jobs was i think steve jobs leaned on a tim cook it might have been even more like a netflix relationship where there's it wasn't two ceos but it was kind of like that it's like i got my business guy over here um i wonder about Iger looking at other examples and and uh saying is that is that for me <laughs> uh or or right. do i need to find you know in the unicorn hunting that he's doing thinking about like structures that might work better for them i don't know Let's look at a couple letters really quickly before we go. Uh, this one from Alex, and I'm reading it because Alex gives me credit. Uh, uh, you discussed on episode 22, you discussed JPEX, contract renewal, full credit to Jason, who noted at timestamp 845. Thank you, Alex. If he's not succeeding at any point, it's a three-year contract. They can pull the plug if they want to. I listened to that and scoffed internally. What Jason said was technically true, I felt, but the board will obviously give JPEX the full three years unless something catastrophically goes wrong because he's a very competent guy. And to a certain extent, he's a victim of circumstances. And if they abruptly sack JPEG, who's the next guy going to be and how is he going to feel? As we all know now, Jason was right to raise JPEG's firing as a possibility because a mere five months later, he's out. Thank you, Alex. I mean, you know, cat something catastrophically went wrong is basically what happened there, Alex. So here we are. And the thing is, I mean, this was like months in the making and, it, and this is a big question alex like to your exact point this is every single question that comes up with people who i know who are at disney or people at other companies or with you know reporters like bellany over at puck it's the big question why would they renew the contract if they were already looking to bring Iger in and i think part of it was like maybe Iger at first was like i don't know if i want to do it 
right? Like I'm, I'm going, I'm investing in people and I'm learning to do this VC thing and I'm on a boat. Uh, and, and I'm like growing stubble. Like I'm, I'm happy to chill. And maybe there was a bit of back and forth. Maybe they, you know, hadn't gone to Iger at that point. They were trying to find other replacements and couldn't find it. And so they figured, well, Chapek is better than, you know, no one. And yeah. so we'll kind of keep up with him. Uh, and then Iger was like, yeah, let's do it. Like, let, let's say everything did come together in the last couple of weeks. Then, yeah, it's like, OK, cool. You're fired and then we'll bring Iger <laughs> and it all works out. I, but I, I do think that's the only thing I can that's the only yeah. explanation i can think no, that, of is this a, it's a holding yeah. action right it's like he, yeah. they need to do something with his contract otherwise he's gonna be out of contract right so they need to do something and you th- there's a limit um we just saw this the like the houston astros uh wanted to offer their general manager they just won the world series a one-year contract and he was like nope like it's an un- it's an insult like at, at some point it's like well we just want to we want to wait a year and then we'll fire you so like with chapek they, they, they kind of had to offer something that was plausibly like we're going to continue on with this for now um to keep it going because they didn't have a ready-made replacement to slot in there i imagine that at least some members of the board when they worked out that deal were thinking in their back of their mind this is something we can we can deal with if we just need to fire him at any point but for now we'll hold on and keep him around and uh, i think i don't think any of them really expected it to happen in five months, but here we are. Yeah. Um, one more letter. This is from Jiva, who says, with everything happening at Disney right now, I can't help but wonder, why does Disney need to buy Hulu? I 100% believe that Disney as a brand is much stronger with adult-oriented content, but Disney has adult-skewing content engines even without Hulu. Uh, 20th TV, ABC Signature, and FX, they have a streaming service they can put their content on, Disney+. Plus. Uh, and Disney has the ad technology and infrastructure to run an ad-supported Disney+. Plus. What am I missing? Why not just sell the surface in, instead of investing nine-plus billion in Hulu, not to mention all the operating costs to run two different streaming services? And in a related question, what happens to the originals that Disney put on Hulu if they do end up selling Hulu? Does their fate depend on whether they were produced in-house or is it a project-by-project basis? I love your podcast and your awesome insights. Happy Thanksgiving and love to your mother's Jiva. Thank you, Jiva. What do you think? Uh, you know, we, we will probably have to devote a whole show to Hulu at some point. But what are you thinking right now in terms of like Hulu? Does it stay or does it go? We should invest. We should uh, invest a whole show to, to yeah, I mean, these are these are these are good questions. These are really good questions. And I there would Jiva, there's a lot of people both in Disney and outside of Disney who agree with your point, who are very much like, why do we need this? We have a streaming service with better technology, we can put stuff on there. It's Part literally it, everywhere else in the world already like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, part of it, uh, a big part of it is the Hulu Live offering. The idea that they can maintain the V MVPD and MPVD. Yeah, they can maintain the kind of virtual TV aspect as people are are cord cutting but looking for sports and news this idea of like there's that growth in hulu plus live tv every single uh month if we look at nielsen it's uh it's adding subscribers consistently every single quarter uh at the live tv so that's not getting looped in with the bundle so there it is a growing business and their arpu on the hulu live tv is exceptionally high it's very 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 high it makes disney a decent amount of money and the advertising on hulu sells out pretty quickly the inventory so it's 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 a good ad business for disney uh, at a time when ad businesses are what everyone's focused on. So that's partly why they wouldn't want to give it up. In- integrating all of that into Disney Plus would take a very long time and you're not sure if it's capable of, of handling it. Two, um, this is a a question that goes to the Bob section. You know, Chapek, <laughs> right. 
the JPEG ideology may have been more okay with having adult-oriented content on Disney+. Plus. Um, it, domestically, I think internationally, Iger would have done similar stuff because I don't think he would have launched. I mean, he talked about launching Hulu internationally. I think that just became Star, but I think he also would have incorporated onto Disney Plus. It just makes more sense to sell it as a tile. Um, but I, I do think he's a firm believer that like nothing really R-rated should be on Disney Plus. Now that doesn't mean he's only going to keep it to uh pg related stuff or to kid stuff i think he was going to expand the content bringing in international content finding different forms of adult oriented content that don't get into like really risque behavior like it would, would tom and pammy a bit tom and pammy have been on disney plus you know i think that's the question that Iger. you know at the core of his belief is that disney plus is should be profitable obviously yes but is also the uh, heart of gold in many ways for all of, of Disney, right? It is the thing that unifies all of this adoration and this love. It's a long-term bet on Disney as a brand as a whole, as well as a place to kind of collect data about customers and have a more direct relationship with them and introduce e-commerce and all that fun stuff. So I think he kind of sees it as two different uh, offerings for partially that reason. It's brand. Three, the bundle offering is much more of a val of a perceived value, a strong perceived value than one individual offering. Think of it this way: if they put everything from Hulu onto Disney Plus, let's say to cover the even 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 noticing the decreases in operational costs from having two platforms, increase the price of Disney Plus to about thirteen fourteen dollars. Right, that's on the that's on the low end. That would still be taking a loss compared to what they're kind of taking now. You combine those together. You have this platform that's like an HBO Max type platform at this point. It's a Netflix at this point. You're saying it's fourteen dollars. It's on par with these versus currently you're saying you pay 18 or I think it's 15 or $16 a month. You get Hulu, ESPN plus and Disney plus you get one of those for free effectively. That goes such a long way with perceived value and it decreases churn. Like you would not believe the churn rate across the bundle, which 40% of you of domestic subscribers use um, has a churn rate of 2.2%. It is the lowest in the industry. People are in that bundle. They are not leaving that bundle. It's a sticky behavior and they can increase ARPA with it because they can increase prices and people still stick with the bundle. And so it's, it's a strong profit play. So for Iger, if you want to keep the brand separate, but you are hyper-focused on profitability and revenue and you want to figure out a way to create more direct-to-consumer platform options to better, um, you know, hyper-target consumers and, and whatever area that it might be and better the advertising on it. And you still think there's an area for live, for, for live television that people are still paying for, clearly, based on the Hulu live TV increase uh, every single quarter. It doesn't make sense to combine them all. And what I will say is this. I think um, uh, Comcast is going to get a very nice payout uh, for, for Hulu if that happens when it comes to it. And I think when you have people like Jeff Shows, the head of NBC Universal, who says things like, if we could bet on Hulu, we would bet on Hulu. You know, whether or not that is a way to drive up value of Hulu, so that way Comcast gets more money, which it would be a smart play if they actually don't really want it, is one thing. But I do think there is an inherent belief amongst a lot of very smart people at like Jeff Shell and Iger, a Kevin Mayer, that Hulu plus Hulu Live TV combined uh, are are great offering for what they do within that Disney bundle. It's, it's a glue. But I always describe Hulu as glue. It, it ties everything together in a way that really helps with revenue. Um, but I was wrong about JPEG. <laughs> I will be wrong <laughs> about other things. I can very well be wrong about this. I just, I personally wouldn't, wouldn't combine them, at least not yet. I also saw a, a take that was a, a more mercenary take that I thought was actually kind of brilliant, which is, you know, who wants Hulu is Comcast, right? NBC Universal wants Hulu. 
Um, and in part, it's because Hulu's kind of better than Peacock. <laughs> it, it, not just like the content, but like the platform and the technology and that they want it. They want they want to use it. And part of the argument to keep it and to buy them out is to keep this product out of the hands of your arch rivals, which I think is, you know, an interesting take I hadn't thought of. Yeah, that too. All right. Uh, if you have a question for us, we would love to get your letters. Send us an email. That's the best way. Downstream at Relay.fm. If you're a Relay FM member, and we thank you if you are, uh, you can just do question mark ask downstream anywhere in the Discord, and that will also come to us. Uh, Julia is our director of strategy, and she is still for now on Twitter at Loudmouth Julia, and I am still there as well at Jay Snell. Julia's at parrotanalytics.com and, of course, has a column at puck.news. I'm at sixcolors.com. Um, I'm also in the Relay FM members Discord, by the way. It is a nice community. If you are a, a person thinking about fleeing Twitter and want a nice place to be, uh, you could join Relay FM and drop in there. And, yes, you can support us while you do that. We don't have a members-only version of the show yet although maybe sometime soon who knows um, but if you like you if you go to relay.fm slash downstream at the top of the page there's a link to support us and if you're already a Relay FM member well you're already in the discord and that's great too we will be back in two weeks who knows who will be the CEO of Dis- it'll be still be Bob Iger probably or somebody else who knows what other Bobs will have job it'll be changes Jason. in the Jason, next use this Use this podcast. Make it happen. Manifest it. All right. Jason Snell, okay. future CEO. I'll change my name to Bob if I have to. All right. <laughs> we'll be back in two weeks. I doubt it will be. I shouldn't say this, right? I shouldn't say it. I doubt it will be as cataclysmic a news week as the next, as the last two weeks. But uh, if I say that, we're, I'm going to jinx us. Okay. <laughs> Until next time, when who knows what will happen. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Julia, see you next time. Bye, guys. <laughs>